you are now tuned into Civil War Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, here to guide you through the fields and towns of mid-19th century America as we delve into the epic conflict that shaped the very soul of this great nation, the Civil War. Together, we'll explore riveting stories from an era of transformation and sacrifice, hearing tales of valiant charges, whispered plots, and the profound human experiences behind the blue and the gray. And if your historical appetite is still hungry for more tales of valor and conflict, be sure to check out our companion podcast, World War II Stories, where we unravel the global conflict that raged nearly a century later. You can find the link in the description or make your way to podhour.com ww2. So, ready your ears and steady your hearts as we traverse through the pages of time, delving into a chapter of history where a nation fought for its very identity. Bathed in the soft, radiant glow of a southern sunrise, New Orleans lay nestled against the winding curves of the Mississippi River. The hum of bustling markets, the rhythmic echo of jazz, and the intoxicating aroma of Creole and Cajun cuisines added an intoxicating layer to the city's dynamic tableau. An irresistible siren, she beckoned to the ships that navigated her river's bends, a radiant gem amidst the raw cotton fields of the Confederacy. Yet beneath her beguiling beauty, New Orleans was a city perched precariously on the brink of tumult, the drumbeats of the Civil War echoing ominously in the distance. By 1862, the war between the states was raging, the lines drawn in blood and iron between North and South. New Orleans, the South's most populous city, pulsated with the fervor of secessionist sentiment. Yet its strategic position, nestled along the Mississippi River's serpentine course, made it a coveted prize in the eyes of the Union. With its bustling port, the city was the Confederacy's economic powerhouse, a key artery supplying goods and resources to the southern states. This was the heart the Union aimed to puncture. In the war rooms of the Union Navy, Admiral David Farragut painstakingly prepared his fleet, their ironclad hulls glinting ominously under the watchful gaze of the Northern Star. Across the battlefield, Major General Mansfield Lovell steeled the Confederates for the approaching storm, fortifying the banks of the Mississippi with formidable defenses. As tensions simmered, the city and the river stood as pawns on a vast chessboard, waiting for the fateful hand of war to make its next move. The stage was set, the actors ready, and the curtain of history slowly rose. The Mississippi Jewel braced herself for a saga of valor, loss, and change, a chapter that would indelibly etch itself into the annals of the Civil War. The battle for New Orleans was about to begin. Chapter 1 The City by the Mississippi In the heart of the South, New Orleans shimmered like a pearl, a unique blend of cultures and influences that bestowed upon it the title of the Mississippi Jewel. The city was an embodiment of Southern charm and sophistication, boasting grand colonial architecture, cobblestone streets echoing with the rhythm of horse hooves, and vibrant markets overflowing with a bounty of goods from the region and beyond. Yet, New Orleans was far more than just its aesthetic allure. Enter one of the city's most influential figures, Mayor John T. Monroe, a man of palpable charisma and fiery Southern spirit. He understood better than most the critical role the city played in the economic vitality of the Confederacy. To the South, 
New Orleans was the indispensable hub, a bustling portal of trade with the world beyond the blockading Union fleet, and a vibrant economic engine that pulsed with the ceaseless trade of cotton, sugar, and a myriad of other goods. The Mississippi River, the city's lifeline, snaked its way past New Orleans, ferrying commodities from the heartland to the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. Indeed, the city's proximity to the Mississippi was both a blessing and a potential curse. As New Orleans thrived, leveraging the river's commerce, the Union eyed the city with a strategic interest, envisioning the river as a serpentine blue pathway cleaving the Confederacy in two. The story of New Orleans was not confined to its bustling port and colonial charm. The city was a simmering melting pot, a rich tapestry woven from threads of Creole, French, Spanish, African, and Native American cultures. This cultural blend manifested itself in everything from the melodious twang of the local dialect to the spicy jambalaya and gumbo that perfumed the city air. As civil war loomed on the horizon, the city was a study in contrasts. While the Mississippi flowed quietly, carrying the hopes and livelihoods of the Confederacy, the hearts of New Orleans citizens pounded with anticipation, echoing the looming cadence of war. The city and its people, so alive with spirit and culture, now found themselves standing on the precipice of a conflict that threatened to reshape their world. But they were not to face it unprepared or alone. For in the heart of the South, in the jewel of the Mississippi, the flame of resistance was being stoked, ready to meet the Union in a battle that would echo through the annals of history. Beyond the boundaries of New Orleans, across the vast expanse of the South, a storm was brewing. It was not just a storm of conflict, but one of division and differing ideologies, a tempest born from the sparks of secession and the tinder of the Union's determined resistance. The South was a region split between those yearning for the past's familiar comfort and those grappling with the relentless march of change. One such figure grappling with these tempestuous winds was Jefferson Davis, the President of the Confederate States. A man of deep Southern roots and staunch secessionist convictions, Davis saw the Confederacy as the last bastion of the true American spirit, a bulwark against what he perceived as Northern aggression. Yet, even as he passionately championed the Confederate cause, he was acutely aware of the divisions that threatened to undermine the South from within. Differences in economic interests, disagreements over the institution of slavery, and regional disparities between states were not just whispers on the southern wind. They were loud, contentious voices that clamored for attention, threatening to drown out the unified call to arms against the North. Meanwhile, in the heart of New Orleans, Mayor Monroe was wrestling with his city's internal divisions. A metropolis as culturally diverse as New Orleans was home to a myriad of viewpoints. French Creoles, Irish immigrants, free people of color, and enslaved Africans all had their distinct perspectives on the war and what it meant for their futures. As the war drums beat louder, Monroe sought to unite these disparate voices into a single, resonant chorus, firm in its defiance against the Union onslaught. In the plantations that stretched across the Mississippi Delta, a different narrative unfolded. The enslaved Africans, whose sweat and toil made the cotton trade possible, heard the war drums with a different ear. To them, the sound wasn't just a call to arms, but a promise of a potential future, one where the chains of bondage could be shattered.
As the South prepared for war, these individuals held onto a fragile hope, whispering tales of freedom around clandestine campfires. From the corridors of Confederate power to the bustling streets of New Orleans, and even the cotton fields that quilted the southern landscape, the storm of division raged. As the South girded itself for the impending war, it was this tumultuous backdrop that set the stage, a stage where the Battle of New Orleans would soon play out its historic act. Underneath the waning moonlight, the plans of war were being unfurled like a giant chessboard. On one side, Admiral David Farragut, a seasoned Union commander with a chiseled face that bore the lines of many naval battles. Across from him, Major General Mansfield Lovell, a Southern gentleman and Confederate leader, whose gaze bore the weight of New Orleans' defense. Two men, two strategies, poised on the brink of a battle that would forever change the course of their lives and the city they held dear. Admiral Farragut's strategy was as aggressive as the North's resolve. As the leader of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron, he had been given a daunting task seize control of the Mississippi, thereby cleaving the Confederacy in two. His fleet, studded with cutting-edge ironclads and manned by a zealous crew, was prepared to undertake the audacious goal of overpowering the Confederate forts that guarded the river. Farragut believed in the power of swift and decisive action, a belief that underpinned his battle strategy. In the heart of the Confederacy, Major General Lovell was crafting his defense with equal parts grit and determination. He understood the criticality of the task at hand to lose New Orleans was to severe the Confederacy's lifeline. Forts Jackson and St. Philip, formidable structures of brick and mortar, stood as the guardians of the river, ready to unleash a fiery hailstorm on the approaching Union fleet. The Confederate soldiers under Lovell's command, imbued with the fervor of defending their homes, were prepared to stand their ground. The tension was palpable as the chessboard was set. Soldiers drilled, cannons were primed, and strategies refined. There was an air of grim determination on both sides, an understanding that the stakes were impossibly high. The Mississippi flowed on, oblivious to its role as the upcoming battleground. Under the watchful eyes of Farragut and Lovell, the fleets lay anchored, their looming silhouettes a stark reminder of the imminent confrontation. In the distance, New Orleans continued its dance of life, the music and laughter masking the undercurrent of apprehension. Mayor Monroe, with the fate of his city teetering on a knife's edge, had one last part to play in this unfolding drama. The last moves were being made, the pieces adjusted on the chessboard of war. The Battle of New Orleans was about to begin, a pivotal play in the grand theater of the American Civil War. Chapter 2 Tensions on the Horizon Admiral David Farragut peered across the moonlit water, his steely gaze fixed on the distant silhouette of Forts Jackson and St. Philip. The man was a seasoned mariner, his life a testament to the sea and its endless battles. Now, as the commander of the Union's West Gulf Blockading Squadron, he was entrusted with an ironclad strategy to seize New Orleans and gain control of the Mississippi. The key to this strategy lay in the Union's fleet of formidable ironclads. These were not just mere vessels, but technological marvels of their time. Their steel-gray armor was built to withstand the brunt of Confederate artillery, their cannons capable of unleashing a storm of iron and fire.
To Farragut, these ironclads were more than just instruments of war, they were the embodiment of the Union's resolve to overcome the Confederacy's defenses. Farragut's plan was one of audacity and risk. He intended to guide his fleet past the Confederate forts under the cover of night, relying on the element of surprise and the ironclad's armored prowess. His goal was not merely to engage the Confederate Navy but to break through their defensive line and reach the heart of New Orleans. Guiding the helm of the flagship USS Hartford, Farragut was acutely aware of the challenges that lay ahead. The Mississippi River was a serpentine beast, its unpredictable currents and narrow straits making it a hazardous gauntlet to navigate, especially under enemy fire. Yet, the Admiral was undeterred. He held an unwavering belief in his men's grit and the invincibility of his ironclad fleet. The nights leading up to the battle were charged with a tense anticipation. The crews of the Union fleet, clad in navy blue, worked tirelessly to prepare their vessels for the assault. The rhythm of hammers on metal, the hiss of steam from the ironclad's engines, and the hum of muttered prayers filled the air, creating an eerie symphony of war. As the dawn of battle approached, Farragut made his rounds, his figure tall and resolute against the backdrop of the mighty ironclads. His final words to his crew echoed across the deck, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. It was a call to arms, a promise of unwavering resolve that would soon be tested in the fiery crucible of battle. With this, the Union's ironclad strategy was set into motion, a pivotal gambit in the epic battle for New Orleans. A weighty silence hung over the Confederate camp as Major General Mansfield Lovell prepared his troops to defend the South's lifeblood. New Orleans, with its bustling port and the vital artery of the Mississippi, was the economic lifeline of the Confederacy. Lovell, a refined Southern gentleman turned military commander, understood all too well the significance of the task at hand. Forts Jackson and St. Philip stood as towering guardians on the riverbanks their heavy cannons pointed towards the water, ready to challenge any Union vessel daring enough to encroach. Lovell had fortified these structures with the best artillery the Confederacy had to offer, creating a formidable line of defense. Lovell's plan was rooted in patience and resilience. He was aware of the Union's ironclad fleet, their imposing figures looming in the distance. However, he put his faith in the mighty forts and their dense forest of cannons. He believed that their relentless artillery fire, coupled with the river's unpredictable currents, would deter or at least significantly slow down the Union's progress. Under Lovell's orders, his Confederate soldiers, in their worn gray uniforms, reinforced the fortifications and checked their cannon loads. The air was thick with the scent of gunpowder and the tension of impending battle. Lovell's gaze remained resolute, his confidence in his strategy unwavering. The days before the battle were a flurry of preparations. Soldiers sharpened their bayonets, the blacksmiths toiled to ensure the cannons were in prime condition, and scouts kept a vigilant watch on the river. Lovell, amidst all this, took the time to address his troops, rallying them with words of Southern pride and the importance of their duty. Lovell's voice rang out, Men, we stand not just for New Orleans, but for the South, our homes our way of life. We defend our lifeblood, and we shall not falter. The cheer that answered him was thunderous, 
resonating across the river and into the approaching dusk. With that, the Confederates steeled themselves for the looming confrontation, armed with their unyielding determination to protect their homeland. Lovell's strategy was set, they would make the Union pay dearly for every inch they dared to advance. The river, the city, and the South depended on it. The stage was set for a showdown that would reverberate through the chapters of history. In the heart of New Orleans, as the moon cast long shadows across the cobblestone streets, Mayor John T. Monroe braced himself for the echo of war drums. The once bustling city had hushed to a whisper, as if holding its breath, awaiting the impending clash between the Union and the Confederacy. Monroe, his heart heavy with the responsibility of leadership, took to the city streets. His carriage, drawn by a pair of ebony stallions, trotted past the elegant wrought iron balconies and beneath the flickering gas lamps, casting a web of light and shadow. The mayor peered out, his eyes reflecting the silent city, so full of life and vibrancy, now on the brink of a defining moment in history. As Monroe made his way to the city's central square, he caught sight of his constituents. They were a diverse crowd, Creole merchants, Irish laborers, free people of color, and enslaved individuals, each entwined in their unique tapestry of life and each poised on the threshold of uncertainty. Monroe understood the role he had to play to rally his people, to instill in them a sense of hope amidst the ominous war drums. Monroe stepped onto the balcony overlooking the square, the city's emblem, the fleur-de-lis, casting a large shadow behind him. As he began to speak, his voice echoed through the silent streets, reaching out to every corner of the city. His words were not just a promise of resistance, but a testament to their unity, their strength, and their shared determination to safeguard their home. As Monroe's address echoed across the city, the distant sound of cannons filled the air a grim prologue to the Battle of New Orleans. The war drums were indeed sounding their echo signaling the start of a confrontation that would forever mark the city's history. Back on the Mississippi, both Admiral Farragut and Major General Lovell received the news of the first cannon fire. This was it, the moment they had prepared for, strategized for, and dreaded. The chess pieces were moving, the war drums were sounding, and the Battle of New Orleans had begun. Chapter 3. Clash at Dawn as dawn began to streak the horizon with hues of crimson and gold, Admiral David Farragut stood on the deck of the USS Hartford, the Union fleet poised behind him. The moment had arrived. It was time to put his audacious plan into action. His command echoed through the brisk morning air, full steam ahead. The Union fleet, led by the formidable ironclads, began to advance against the river's strong current. The stillness of the morning was shattered as the Confederate forts unleashed their fury, and the river erupted into a battlefield. Fiery trails arced through the sky, the boom of cannons filling the air, as the Confederate artillery sought to halt the Union's advance. Farragut, his face hardened by the battle's inferno, steered his fleet through the rain of fire. The ironclads took the brunt of the Confederate onslaught, their steel skin shimmering under the sparks of the impacting shells. The admiral's belief in his fleet and his men was about to be tested like never before. Then, the unforeseen happened. A rogue cannonball hit the Hartford's rigging, setting it ablaze. 
Farragut, undeterred by the growing inferno around him, ordered his men to continue their charge. His voice rose above the clamor, his words imbued with unyielding resolve, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Inspired by their admiral's unwavering courage, the Union sailors pressed on. The ironclads, taking full advantage of their armored hulls, plowed through the artillery fire, the river churning beneath their advancing forms. The Confederate line, despite their relentless fire, began to falter under the ironclads' assault. In the heart of this maelstrom, Farragut's strategy began to unfold. The Union fleet, though battered and scorched, broke through the Confederate line. With a trail of smoke and fire marking their daring passage, the Union had breached the South's formidable defenses. Back in the city, the rumble of distant cannons was the only sign of the fierce battle unfolding. As reports of the Union's breakthrough reached Mayor Monroe, the city held its breath. The Battle of New Orleans had reached its climax, and the fate of the city was hanging in the balance. In the heart of the Confederate forts, Major General Mansfield Lovell watched in disbelief as the Union ironclads breached his defenses. Their relentless advance, despite the fiery onslaught from his artillery, had him in awe of their audacity. The battle had turned into a desperate struggle, the Confederate line under relentless fire, and Lovell had to act swiftly. His orders echoed through the forts, a commanding voice amidst the chaos, keep firing, men. Make every shot count. The Confederate soldiers, despite their shock, rallied to his command, their bayonets glistening as they fired their cannons with renewed vigor. The Mississippi River lit up with the fiery dance of artillery fire as the South tried to regain control. Lovell watched the scene from his post, his heart pounding in his chest. His cannons, his mighty forts, were not stopping the Union's advance. Farragut's ironclads, like unstoppable leviathans, plowed through the river's turbulent waters, their cannon fire meeting the Confederate barrage in a symphony of destruction. The Confederate line, once an impenetrable wall, was now under severe strain. The soldiers fought valiantly, their gray uniforms stained with sweat and gunpowder, their faces etched with determination. Yet, as the Union's breakthrough became increasingly apparent, a sense of dread began to grip the defenders. Despite this, Lovell refused to back down. He rallied his troops, inspiring them with his fervor, this is our home, our South. We will not yield. His words echoed across the forts, a beacon of resolve amid the thunderous roar of cannon fire. As the Union ironclads approached New Orleans, the city prepared itself for the inevitable. Mayor Monroe his face grim, understood the gravity of the situation. The battle was in its most critical phase, and his city was under fire. Despite the dire circumstances, he clung to hope, praying that the courage of the South would hold the Union at bay. In the heart of New Orleans, as the echoes of battle reached its winding streets and grand squares, Mayor John T. Monroe stood on the City Hall balcony. His face was a mask of concern, his hands clenched around the railing. The battle's outcome was still uncertain, but one thing was clear his city was on the brink of history. As Monroe gazed out over the city, he saw anxiety reflected on every face. People huddled in their homes, 
clutching their loved ones close, praying for safety. The grand manners of the French Quarter, the bustling marketplaces, the vibrant Creole neighborhoods all held their breath, waiting. Despite the uncertainty, Monroe had a duty to his people. He had to keep their spirits up, to offer them hope in this desperate hour. He stepped up to the microphone, and his voice, strong yet soothing, echoed through the city streets, My fellow New Orleanians, fear not. We stand together, as we always have. We stand for our city, our home. His words seemed to hang in the air, offering a glimmer of solace in the gloom. Across the city, people clung to his message, their hearts yearning for the battle's end, for their city to be spared the horrors of war. Meanwhile, the battle raged on. Reports of the Union's advance reached the city, the news spreading like wildfire. The Union was at their doorstep, and the city's fate was uncertain. Monroe, in his heart of hearts, hoped for a miracle. He hoped that Lovell and his troops could repel the invaders. As night fell, New Orleans was a city on edge. The soft glow of the gas lamps cast long shadows on the deserted streets. The once vibrant city was hushed, its lively jazz tunes replaced by a haunting silence. All they could do was wait and hope, as the echoes of cannon fire reminded them of the battle being fought for their city's destiny. Chapter 4 The Fall of New Orleans The early morning sun painted the Mississippi River a fiery red as Admiral David Farragut, on the deck of the USS Hartford, saw the spires of New Orleans silhouette against the dawn. Despite the toll of the ferocious battle, his Union fleet had persevered, their ironclad strength proving pivotal in breaching the Confederate line. Farragut, weary yet triumphant, surveyed the scene. His ships, though scarred and scorched by the battle, were still standing strong, a testament to their resilience. The Confederate forts, once formidable, were now quiet, their guns silenced in the face of the Union's relentless advance. The admiral, feeling a mix of relief and triumph, ordered his flag to be hoisted. The Union colors, a symbol of their victory, fluttered in the morning breeze, reflecting on the calm waters of the Mississippi. Farragut had done what many deemed impossible, he had taken New Orleans. His triumph, however, was tinged with a sense of sorrow. He looked upon the city, its once lively streets hushed, its people waiting in apprehension. War, he knew, was a necessary evil, a bitter pill to swallow for the promise of a united nation. He hoped the city would understand, that in time, the wounds would heal. As Farragut's fleet anchored off the New Orleans harbor, the news of their victory reached the north. Cheers erupted in the streets of Washington, New York, and Boston. Farragut, the daring admiral who had captured the Jewel of the South, was hailed as a hero. The North had gained a vital advantage, and their morale was at an all-time high. Meanwhile, back in New Orleans, Mayor Monroe received the news with a heavy heart. The Union had triumphed, and his city was now in their hands. Despite the weight of the news, he resolved to face the new dawn with courage, to lead his city through the changes it would face. The battle was over, but the story of New Orleans was far from finished. The arrival of the Union fleet brought an uneasy silence over New Orleans. The once bustling city, 
now subdued under the shadow of Farragut's victorious ships, awaited what would come next. Mayor Monroe, donning his formal attire, prepared to meet the victor. Surrender was a bitter pill to swallow, but for the sake of his city and its people, he would do what was necessary. Stepping aboard the USS Hartford, Monroe was met by Admiral Farragut. The tension was palpable as the mayor, his voice steady despite the situation, made the official declaration, the city of New Orleans surrenders to the Union. Farragut, understanding the weight of Monroe's words, accepted the surrender. His reply was firm yet respectful, we are here not as conquerors, but liberators. New Orleans remains your city, Mayor Monroe. In the days following the surrender, Union soldiers began to patrol the streets of New Orleans, their blue uniforms a stark contrast to the city's vibrant colors. Despite initial apprehension, life gradually resumed its pace. The markets reopened, the jazz musicians played their soulful tunes, and the resilient spirit of New Orleans shone through. Simultaneously, Major General Benjamin Butler took charge of the occupation. His aim was to maintain order and ensure a peaceful transition. However, his harsh measures, including the notorious Woman Order, created friction between the city's inhabitants and the Union occupiers. The occupation of New Orleans was not without its challenges, but the city's capture marked a significant shift in the Civil War, proving that the Union could strike deep into the heart of the Confederacy. In the aftermath of New Orleans' surrender, news of the city's fall reached Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Sitting in his office in Richmond, Virginia, he received the news with a heavy heart. The loss of the South's most vibrant city was a devastating blow, a stark reminder of the toll of war. The Union has taken New Orleans, his aide reported, his voice strained. The words hung in the air, their impact more profound than the silence that followed. Davis, a man who had always carried the weight of the Confederacy on his shoulders, felt that burden grow heavier. His South was losing ground, its jewel lost to the Union. Despite the despair, Davis refused to bow to defeat. He called upon his generals, his statesmen, rallying them with fervor, We are the South. Our cause is just, and we will stand strong. His words echoed through the halls of the Confederate capital, a beacon of resolve amid the uncertainty. Back in New Orleans, the occupation brought changes. General Butler's reign was marked by unrest and resistance. His stringent orders, especially the controversial woman order, which treated any woman showing disrespect to Union soldiers as a woman of the street, led to increased tension. However, the Union held firm control, the blue-clad soldiers a constant reminder of the North's triumph. The city, once filled with the melody of jazz and the vibrancy of Creole culture, now hummed with a different tune one of change, resilience, and the echoes of a nation divided. The laughter was quieter, the music subdued, and the marketplaces less bustling. Yet, New Orleans remained unbroken, its spirit refusing to be quelled. The city was adapting, enduring the despair of war, as it clung to the hope of peace. Chapter 5 Aftermath and Impact In the weeks following the occupation, New Orleans underwent a transformation. Once the heart of the Confederacy, it had become a Union stronghold. 
Admiral Farragut's victory had turned the tide of the war, and the city was now a symbol of the North's resilience and determination. Despite the unease that permeated the city, life continued. New Orleans-renowned jazz musicians filled the air with their melodies, the vibrant Creole cuisine wafted from the kitchens, and children ran about in the parks, their laughter echoing through the streets. The city was adjusting to its new reality. At the same time, the occupation was enforced by Union General Benjamin Butler. His administration was marked by a strict and sometimes controversial approach to maintaining order, but it also brought about significant changes. He introduced reforms, including the establishment of a public school system and infrastructure improvements, which left a lasting impact on the city. Meanwhile, Admiral Farragut was celebrated as a hero back in the North. His bold strategy and relentless pursuit of victory in New Orleans had changed the course of the war. The city's fall, a severe blow to the Confederacy, had given the Union control of the Mississippi River a strategic advantage that would be critical in the battles to come. Yet, even as a Union stronghold, the spirit of New Orleans remained undimmed. The city retained its vibrant culture and unique charm, its streets filled with the harmony of jazz the colors of Creole life, and the resilience of its people. Despite the shadow of war, the city stood as a beacon of hope and endurance, a testament to its enduring spirit in the face of change. As the months passed, the capture of New Orleans marked a distinct shift in the Civil War. The Confederacy, once assured of its stronghold on the South, was forced to reevaluate its strategies. The loss of New Orleans, a critical commercial and logistical hub, had cut deep, leaving the South to grapple with the blow. Meanwhile, in the North, President Abraham Lincoln regarded the victory as a significant stride towards quelling the rebellion. The Union's control over the Mississippi River choked off vital supply routes for the Confederacy, disrupting their ability to mobilize resources effectively. Despite the mounting challenges, Confederate General Robert E. Lee remained resolute. The loss of New Orleans was a setback, but he refused to let it mark the downfall of the Confederacy. In a speech to his troops, he encouraged them, We have lost a city, but not our spirit. We fight for our land, our people, our way of life. Back in the Union-occupied New Orleans, life under General Butler's rule was marked by tension and defiance but also resilience and adaptation. New Orleans was evolving under its new governance, its people learning to navigate their new circumstances. Despite the hardships, the city's pulse never faltered, its heart continuing to beat to the rhythm of jazz and the vibrant hustle of its people. As the tides of war shifted, New Orleans stood at its center, a symbol of the Union's resolve and a testament to the indomitable spirit of its inhabitants. The war was far from over, but the capture of New Orleans had undoubtedly changed its course, shaping the path towards an uncertain yet highly consequential future. In the shadow of the Civil War, a new New Orleans was emerging. The city, once the jewel of the South, was now the stronghold of the North. Yet, amid the political shift and the profound transformation, the soul of the city remained intact. Admiral Farragut's victory had altered New Orleans' place on the map of the Civil War, but it hadn't quelled the city's spirit. The vibrant jazz tunes still echoed through the streets, 
the delicious waft of Creole cuisine still filled the air, and the vibrant colors of Mardi Gras still painted the cityscape. The Union occupation, however, brought change. General Butler, despite his controversial reign, initiated significant reforms. His efforts to enforce order, build infrastructure, and establish a public education system reshaped the city. Although his measures were met with resistance, his tenure left an indelible mark on New Orleans history. Years later, as the Civil War became a chapter in history books, the impact of New Orleans' capture remained evident. The city was no longer merely the South's jewel, but a symbol of resilience and transformation. It bore the scars of a nation divided and the resilience of its people who had navigated the tides of change. New Orleans, in its new avatar, stood as a testament to the enduring spirit of humanity. Its people, culture, and spirit had weathered the storm of the Civil War and emerged into a new era. The city was changed forever, its history interwoven with the tapestry of a nation's struggle, its legacy a story of endurance, resilience, and the unyielding march of time. Chapter 6 Legacy of the Battle As the final echoes of the Civil War faded, New Orleans began to heal. The vibrant city, now forever etched in the annals of the war's history, carried the memory of its strife. The capture of the city was more than a military conquest, it was a chapter in the city's life that changed its trajectory forever. Walking through the streets of post war New Orleans, one couldn't help but feel the weight of the city's past. The magnificent French Quarter, while still retaining its classic charm, carried the subtle marks of the war. The jazz bars, once a lively hub of music and merriment, now sang songs of resilience, their tunes echoing the city's saga. Families sat around dinner tables, recounting tales of Admiral Farragut's audacious naval charge and General Butler's firm rule. The stories of the war had seeped into the city's fabric, narrated and retold, passing down from one generation to the next. Amid the tales of conflict and occupation, stories of heroism and resilience emerged. There were stories about local heroes who stood up against the odds, tales of bravery, and narratives of endurance. These stories kept the memory of the war alive, serving as a reminder of the city's ability to rise above adversity. The war had ended, but its echoes could still be heard in the music, seen in the architecture, and felt in the spirit of New Orleans. The city was a living testament to a significant era, a testament that held both the scars and the strength derived from them. New Orleans stood resilient, a city forever changed but never broken, echoing with the stories of the past as it moved forward into the future. In the pages of New Orleans history, no figure was as divisive as General Benjamin Butler. For some, he was a villain who brought harsh rule to their beloved city. For others, he was a necessary force of change, a figure who helped reshape New Orleans in the face of adversity. General Butler's tenure was marked by strict measures. His efforts to enforce union control, while ensuring public order, often invoked the ire of New Orleans residents. The infamous Woman Order, for instance, where he permitted Union soldiers to treat any woman showing contempt for the Union as a woman of the town plying her avocation, sparked outrage. Many saw Butler as an oppressor, a symbol of the Union's heavy-handed control. 
Yet, alongside the stern measures, Butler also introduced reforms that left a lasting impact on the city. His establishment of the public school system provided a basis for education for many children. His efforts towards sanitation and infrastructure improvements brought significant benefits. These changes were significant, laying the groundwork for the New Orleans of today. For some, these reforms painted Butler as a hero, a figure who propelled the city into the future amid turbulent times. To them, he was a visionary who, despite his controversial methods, contributed to shaping the modern identity of the city. As time moved on, the figure of General Butler continued to evoke debate. Was he a hero or a villain? The answer often lay in perspective. But what was certain was that his influence on the city was profound, shaping its course during one of the most critical periods in its history. The city of New Orleans bore the indelible mark of his rule, a testament to a chapter of its history that continues to provoke thought and discussion to this day. As the years rolled on, the Civil War became a distant memory, yet its echoes remained in the form of those who had fallen. New Orleans, a city that had seen the brunt of the conflict, held close the memory of the souls who had perished during those tumultuous times. It was a city that remembered and honored its fallen, keeping their stories alive through generations. In the heart of the city stood the Confederate Memorial Hall Museum, a solemn tribute to the Confederate soldiers who had fought for their beliefs. Despite the controversy surrounding its existence in a city that was once a Union stronghold, the museum held a collection of artifacts and stories that paid homage to the sacrifice and bravery of these men. Every year on Memorial Day, New Orleans held a solemn ceremony in the Greenwood Cemetery. Residents gathered, donning period attire, laying wreaths, and reciting prayers. The ceremony, filled with heartfelt remembrance and respect, served as a poignant reminder of the city's past. And then there were the stories told from one generation to another, tales of brave soldiers and innocent civilians, caught in the crossfire of a nation divided. They were stories of hardship and valor, of loss and resilience, stories that ensured the memory of the fallen was never forgotten. In the vibrant bustle of modern-day New Orleans, amid the jazz music, the Mardi Gras celebrations, and the Creole cuisine, the memory of the fallen was etched deeply. In the collective consciousness of the city, those who had perished in the Civil War were remembered, their legacy a testament to a city that had endured a significant chapter of American history and had come out resilient and strong. Their stories were a part of the city's soul, a reminder of its past, a beacon guiding its future.